0: Welcome to the New Books Network. So, hi everyone, this is my name is Rachel Stewart. I'm a host at the New Book Network, and the channel that I host for is the Sex, Sex Work, and Sexualities channel. Today, I'm really excited to speak to Kanika Bacha about her amazing book, Worlding Post Colonial Sexualities. Kanika, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Can you tell us who you are and about your area of research?
1: Certainly. Uh, Thank you, Rachel, for this podcast and thank you to new books as well. Um, I am professor of English at Texas Tech University, uh, where I teach courses in postcolonial studies, comparative literature, Uh, gender and sexuality studies, particularly courses in transnational feminism and queer studies. Um, And before joining Texas Tech, I was uh, assistant professor at the University of Delhi, uh, where um, I was trained primarily in British literature, but also secondarily during my graduate studies in in comparative literature and, and feminist studies. Um, I uh, did my bachelor's and master's and my MPhil from the University of Delhi, mm-hmm. and then I went to Loyola University Chicago for my PhD, uh, where I specialized in postcolonial studies, and where I also taught very briefly uh, courses on South Asian studies. You. So, um, uh, you know, in short, my my uh, primary specializations are pr- postcolonial and and comparative literature, um, and also uh, strongly connected to these is my interest in women's and gender studies. Uh, And I, in my work, what I try to do is is explore the intersections between these various uh, modes of analysis, so as to come up with a methodology for examining uh, literary and cultural production as also social movement literature from these various locations that I am interested in, primarily locations in the global south. Um, and for the purposes of this book, Worlding Post-Colonial Sexualities, my contexts are India, Jamaica, and South Africa. Uh, in the past, I have written um, on uh, post-colonial drama, again, in connection with with feminist and queer uh, consciousness emerging from Global South locations. Uh, And this book is kind of like a continuation of of that work uh, with a slightly different focus. My previous work was more literature focused, literary, so to speak. Uh, Whereas uh, this current work that we're talking about today, it it delves uh, into social movement literature, uh, what I like to call activist literature uh literature which is uh, which is uh, which is not literary in the strict sense of the term uh, but it is uh the kind of reading material the kind of of uh, material which carries a movement forward um magazines journa- journals newspapers newsletters pamphlets manifestos etc
0: yeah i mean they're really important they're really important documents they're historical documents aren't they they're just not formalized so um, in your introduction you describe um using the post-colonial feminist and queer archives for alternative histories of sexual precarity vulnerability and resistance can you tell us what you mean by that
1: yes uh, so, uh, first, I think I would like to go into the definition of the archives, which has expanded greatly over the past uh, couple of decades. You know, when we talk about archives today, we, we usually think of uh, not just materials tucked away in dusty libraries where, uh, you know, people have to make special trips and find them, but also materials which were previously tucked away in these spaces, but which are increasingly now. Uh, Um, become digitized, Mm. Uh, and so so the definition of the archives has kind of shifted over the past few decades with increasing technological affordances, right? So so some of this work that I did, uh, did involve uh, visiting libraries and archival centers and, and, uh, and special collections, Uh, and contacting individuals who may have had access to some of these materials, uh, maybe because they were involved directly in in some of the social movements that I'm studying. Uh, But a large portion of the material that I looked at is also available online. Um, So I would say it's it's sort of half and half, about 50% of the materials I accessed uh, by going to uh, special collections and libraries. and And about half of the material I accessed was available online, Uh, or became available online during the process of writing the book. Um, And uh, so so these archives, uh, whether digital or print, what they are doing is recording a certain movement um, or certain movements during a certain period of time, which in my case, uh, the focus is 1970s to 1990s. But this, this is the pre-digital era, so to speak, right? So at that point of time, uh, uh, activists, particularly uh, activists working for in the women's movement or in the incipient gay, lesbian, and queer movements, they, they really did not have the means of communication which are available to us today. Social media, listservs, uh, you know, um, uh, Twitter feeds, and so on. You know, all that was not available at that point of time. So, so these these publications were really the primary means of communication available to them, and and these were uh, for the most part independent publications. You know, they 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 did not rely on governmental sources uh, of funding. Uh, you know, they were they were they were published by non governmental organizations, organizations which were working in the fields of women's empowerment and, and uh, um, you know, gay and lesbian rights, broadly the rubric human rights. Uh, and, uh, and what they did at this point of time from the 1970s to the 90s is sort of create a, a public which, which was interested in these events uh, and these, these, these discussions about, about uh, broadly human rights issues affecting women and gay and lesbian populations. But they also, uh, um, shall we say, brought this this broad public or community of readers into being, uh, Because previously in these contexts, uh, there were no publications which were were, uh, catering to a readership, which was marginalized, vulnerable, uh, facing discrimination, um, and, and really did not have the social means of communication that we now have uh, thanks to technology available to them. Mm-hmm. all, in, in in most cases, the, the materials that I'm looking at are pioneering publications from these various different locations. Uh, let me just give you an example. For instance, uh, Manushi, the magazine from India that I look at. It was an English language magazine, which was published by two women academics who were both working at the University of Delhi. And they decided early on that they were not going to be accepting uh, any kind of donor funding or or governmental funding um, to bring out a magazine which talked about the rights of women. Uh, The magazine also came into being because the 1970s, late 1970s, early 80s was a period which, which on the one hand in India was marked by uh, increasing attention to violence against women, but also increasing uh, governmental regulation to try and prevent instances of violence against women. So this was a pioneering magazine, which was was trying to cover a lot of ground by by documenting cases of violence, by documenting legal recourses women had at their disposal to combat this violence uh, by connecting women's issues to broader working class issues, um, by making sure that that this magazine was not just uh, covering incidents of gloom and doom, but it was also an outlet for creativity. There was poetry in the magazine. There were stories in the magazine. There were translated, uh, 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 translated pieces of writing in the magazine, translated from various Indian languages. Right. Now, similarly, around the same time, uh, in Jamaica, a small group of women who ran a, a theater group called Cistron Theater Collective, they brought out a magazine called Sistrin Magazine. Initially, the magazine was to, to communicate to their Jamaican and Caribbean readers the activities that the theater group was involved in. But very soon, the magazine moved beyond that. And again, like Manushi in the Indian context, started documenting uh, instances of violence and abuse, but also documenting the various uh, rights and, and, and legal recourses women had to combat that violence. Started talking about community education, started talking about women working in non-traditional jobs, mm. like construction, um, like, uh, uh, you know, uh, Farming, which which was traditionally considered a male occupation, but within Jamaica there is a preponderance of women working in farming activities. So all of these uh, these uh, these publications, uh, much like the ones I've talked about, the two I've talked about, our sister in magazine and, and *Manushi*, um, all of these publications are documenting sexual precarity in many ways. Uh, you know the 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 kind of um, violence which which women and sexual minorities are exposed to in many of these locations but then they are not just stopping there they are also they are also making sure that that the readers have knowledge and awareness of of their own rights mm. and legislation about these rights of what they can do to protect themselves uh, and so you know these are definitely archives of a certain era yeah but also as well that Milo
0: at the time that that's an era of like really kind of like heightened political awareness and political activity because I'm thinking right. you know the 70s we don't know in the 70s the beginning of the 70s the civil rights movement has been squashed yeah we're still optimistic yeah it's it's a really important period isn't it it's, it's before that sort of the it's before the internet it's before that that mass uh, sort of media control you know and i i was you know reading reading about that period um it actually made me a bit nostalgic because i remember and it's not quite the same but it's sort of similar I remember sort of like because obviously I was quite young at the time, but I was still like you know engaged and you know I remember there would be all, all these like punk magazines, like, like that, these little zines and stuff like that, and they, they would be really important in your community to find out what was going on, and you'd wait for them to come out, and they would be in special places, and you would go to those places to get the zine, and you know they, it was it was a community bonding type activity as well as a kind of like a an historical document. So, yeah, I sort of, um, that made me, you know, I was really aware of that. I was very conscious of the time period, you know, it made me quite nostalgic. So can you tell me why you chose India, Jamaica, in South Africa? Uh,
1: so, so I think, uh, you know, I was, what I was looking for was um, context where, where there was uh, some documentation of uh, of uh, second and third wave feminist concerns, but also how these connected to a, a, an emerging queer rights okay. uh, discourse. Okay. And, and what I found was uh, uncanny similarities between these, between these contexts. Mm. Uh, let me again, give an example and, and say that, uh, you know, Jamaica usually considered one of the most homophobic countries in the world, right? Uh, one hears so much about violence against uh, gay, lesbian, and queer people in Jamaica. However, uh, from, the, from the late 70s onwards, what people don't realize is that there was also a burgeoning uh, gay and lesbian consciousness, which is documented in, in one of the magazines of this, pub, of this period, which was circulated privately. It was not for public consumption, it was circulated uh, uh, privately and rather secretively. Uh, among the gay and lesbian population in Jamaica, but also uh, the the gay and lesbian population in the wider Caribbean, it also uh, reached uh, the the Jamaican and Caribbean diasporic population in the U.S. and U.K. Um, and and so so this emerging consciousness, I think, then 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 sort of allows us to reevaluate uh, the notion of Jamaica as a homophobic space mm. and. So we can't just hold on to that notion, we can actually say, well, Jamaica also was the site of a, of a emerging gay and lesbian consciousness. Now, similar things were happening in, in other parts of the world. Again, in the in the late 70s, early 80s in South Africa, there was a, 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 an organization called the Gay Association of South Africa. You know, it was pre- Dominantly a white organization, they were not really known for their progressive racial politics. But nevertheless, what what they were trying to do is is sort of create a community for for the gay and lesbian population in in um, primarily in Johannesburg, but then they 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 had branches all over all over uh, South Africa in in Cape Town and other locations in South Africa later on, and. Uh, again, you know, it, India kind of steps in a little later than than, than these early examples of uh, Global South gay and lesbian emergence uh, because the first uh, regularly run magazine um, for, for gay and lesbians in India did not originate till 1990. Okay. You know? Not to say that there was not gay and lesbian uh emergence before that, there certainly was, but we don't have documents of that emergence. So what I was seeing was these sort of over, overlapping uh, trajectories uh, in, in feminist movements, but also in gay and lesbian movements, emerging gay and lesbian movements. And so, um, uh, you know, my interest as a post-colonialist is in, in, glo- in the global south. Yeah. So these three contexts offered me rich sites for, for analyzing those connections. Um, and, uh, and what it allowed me to do was also to see if these, if these movements were in fact speaking to each other or not. And in fact, they were because uh, Indian feminists were in touch with Caribbean feminists <laughs> and with, with African feminists. Yeah, yeah. And uh Indian gay and lesbian activists were aware of other gay and lesbian uh movements in other parts of the global south. Yeah. So for me, I think it was simply a matter of global south connections and linking these contexts together.
0: Yeah, because what I got from it as well is like These are these are all like sort of former colonized by Britain places, aren't they? And I thought that was quite interesting. Because what I really got a sense of as well, this kind of overthrowing of the kind of uh sort of like post-colonial sort of um adaptation. So my, you know, I'm a criminologist, so I can tend to come at things slightly differently, you know. But I do know that in Jamaica, like practically you know, one of the first laws that got put down after emancipation from, from Britain was this kind of like, you know, these these anti-buggery laws because the way buggery had been used as a way of um uh, sort of um uh, controlling people, yeah. And so it was really interesting to see how that, you know, you identify uh, Jamaica as, as being a space that we're told is like massively homophobic, but actually is a space of... of a lot of resistance historically resistant i did i was really interested in why you didn't use trinidad though because i thought trinidad would have been a really interesting uh sort of like comparison like almost between jamaica and india because there's that that massive uh asian diasporic population there that would have been really quite quite interesting
1: yeah, Trinidad would have been a great case study too. I think, I think uh, my, uh, my uh, primary reason for using these three contexts was that these uh, there was some archiv- archivization of the, the, the social movements that I'm studying in these three contexts that I could access. You know, uh, and, uh, and I was not sure about the archivization available in, in, in contexts like Trinidad. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, Trinidad would be would be a a good fit because, you know, again, a formerly colonized country. Yeah. uh, You know, uh, under British colonialism, uh, inheriting some of the anti-homosexuality legislation that was certainly the case in in South Africa, India and Jamaica. And that continues to be the case. Yes. In in some respects in Jamaica, certainly. Right. So the point of connection that you charted between these three Context that I study is the legacy of colonial legislation, you know, and that is very much true of Trinidad as much as it is of, of Jamaica.
0: Yeah, but um, I, would, I would say would say probably even more because you've got that kind of that that indentured like Asian sort of uh, sort of um, sort of diasporic population that comes in. I st- I heard you I read a phrase in your book that really jumped out to me, so I really wanted you to explain it to me because I was quite interested you said you use a phrase um, research on an international scale above the nation state and below the world system. How does the book do this? How, do, how does the book explain this? What does the book do with this? Uh,
1: well uh, so I, this is a, a kind of a disciplinary stylization that I'm, I'm, I'm uh, working against. Uh it, does not always happen, but sometimes it does happen that people who work in post-colonial studies often try to, uh, often end up concentrating on one geographic area, okay. you know, which is, uh, it could be either South Asia or they could be Africanists or they could be Caribbeanists. Um, and, and I think because of my background in comparative literary studies, what I'm trying to, st- to, to, to uh, to do here is both push against the centrality of the of the nation state as an explanatory paradigm but also against the centrality of uh, region specific analyses mm. so that i'm what i'm trying to, to do is uh, say okay these are very vast regions africa is not just one country it is several countries uh, so it's south asia as a region again a vast territory uh, then also the Caribbean, many different small nation states, right? So maybe, uh, uh, maybe it's not possible to look at these regional contexts in entirety to be able to do justice to, to, the, to the discourse which is emerging um, about the women's movement or the gay and lesbian movement. But maybe it is possible to use um, the national trajectories as, as, as launching pads and then to talk about uh, regional and, and uh, Global South mm. cross currents, yeah. which, are, which are occurring. So again, a uh, couple of examples I think would be helpful here. We are, I'm thinking for instance of a, a Global South collective called um, Development Alternatives for Women in a New Era. Uh, and the acronym is DAWN. And that collective was in fact uh, initiated by some Indian feminist economists. And and what it went on to do then was was sort of emerge as a a think tank for global South discussions about women and development. Hmm. With the inputs of Caribbean feminists, African feminists, um, as well as South Asian feminists, right? and, and I think the thinking there was that development issues which are which are um, particularly relevant to to the global south they cannot be addressed from a euro American perspective no matter that the hegemony of the euro-american perspective is center stage in international or shall we say global discussions right so that so that we do need to keep an eye on the international or the global Discussions, but that we need to develop our own paradigms for analysis. Yeah, these are above the nation-state, yet below the global international uh, hegemonic arena. Yeah, you use the phrase south to south, and I, I really south like to it. south. Yeah. yeah, and that's what it is. These are south-south cooperations, and then these uh, these feminists then became really, really uh, strong voices in the United Nations conferences on women and development, United Nation conferences uh, through the 90s, uh, 80s, 90s, and then um, till the present. Yeah. And then what they did was they combined not, I mean, initially at, at the United Nation forums, they were, there were some, there was some hesitation bringing concerns of sexual minorities on board in those discussions. But thanks to the efforts of some of these pioneering feminists, those discussions were brought onto the uh, global arena through through the United Nations uh, because the the logic which was propounded was, you know, these are all social justice issues. These are all development issues. One cannot talk about women's development without talking about concerns of sexual minorities. there is, there is now a growing awareness of the intersectionality of these concerns, uh, thanks in part to many of these early Global South pioneers, or shall we say South-South cooperation.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's awesome. Um, you argue that worlding sexualities involves considering feminist and LGBTQ publications as anterior- Center publications. So what do you mean by this? And how does the book explore this?
1: Yes. Uh, so you were talking a while ago, Rachel, about about uh, countercultural publications, right? Okay. Uh, with respect to those uh, punk magazines and, and other countercultural uh, forms of expression which were available in the 70s, probably the early 80s as well. So the phrase I use is counterpublics. Mm. Uh, is not my phrase. It is a phrase which has been used very effectively by feminist and queer theorists, uh, and it is basically a, as is, as it is defined by by uh, the philosopher feminist philosopher Nancy Fraser. It is a, a parallel discourse arena. Counterpublic is a parallel discourse arena, and so uh, if we are looking for for uh, for discourse or conversations about uh, about concerns which are relevant to women and lgbtq populations then we cannot look just to mainstream sources no we, we cannot look just at, at mainstream newspapers or or mainstream magazines uh, because they will have some discussion about about uh, about concerns which are important to to these constituencies but those those discussions will be buried among other uh, other news or other other focuses, right? And so so these magazines that I'm looking at they emerge as counterpublics um, because they provide a front and center stage attention to these two concerns of sexual violence uh, legislation impacting uh, impacting women and uh, LGBTQ populations and uh, and the way they become anterior counter public is because uh, they kind of initiate that discussion. You know, they, 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 they are pioneers in initiating that discussion. Before these magazines or these uh, newspapers were, were published, there was no public discussion, you know, so there was no, no uh, avenue for talking about these concerns in this focused, uh, directed manner. And so uh, anterior in that sense as, 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 uh, as venues which are coming first and foremost prior to other discussions which we now take for granted. Mm. Um, but, yes.
0: Yeah, I mean, what I, what I, you know, sort of like this phrase that came to me when I was reading this, because what you're getting is an historical echo of an insider viewpoint. It's almost like you know an insider viewpoint that you would not have got in the mainstream. Yeah, yeah. you know, even within within a mainstream context, even within a sort of like a, a sort of feminist standpoint con- the context, yeah. that standpoint is often from an insider looking into a community. Yeah. You know, so and that's what I got. It. It's almost like you got this echo of these people talking about what's going on from for them from their perspective without actually responding to a question they're doing their own thing and that made me realize just how important a resource this t- type of archival work is you know because it is you know it's a kind of the evidence of how people within a marginalized community were thinking of at the time without responding yeah. to an app yeah. you know an outsider wanting to ask some questions it's just how they see things and it was, you know, it made, you know, that really resonated with me, how important this type of methodology is.
1: Can we, um, since you brought up the issue of echoes, uh, I want to sort of continue with the sound metaphor and and say that there is, yes, there are echoes of, of the kind of uh, uh, efforts people were involved in to, to, uh, to provide more visibility to some of these issues. Yes, there was, but there are also noticeable silences. Mm. Uh, so that you know, uh, I I don't want listeners of these part of the podcast to think that if these are pioneering gay and lesbian publications or pioneering feminist publications, then uh, then all is well with the politics, and we can we need not examine the politics closely because we do need to do that, right? Uh, Uh, We can celebrate these sources, but we must also be be critical of these sources when the occasion demands. And the silences which are there are very noticeable. So that initially, uh, the the, uh, Indian magazine, Indian women's magazine that I'm talking about, it had a distinctly anti-lesbian stand. Mm -hmm. And it was not willing to take on uh, lesbian women's concerns on board. you know. Initially the, the, uh, the gay and lesbian publication from South Africa that I look at which is called Exit uh, which began its life as, as a bilingual magazine called Links Kakel initially it was not just white focused but also very much gay male focused right And so there were a lot of uh, differences of opinion between the gay, and les- gay men and lesbian women who were organized who were who were, uh, Uh, who were involved in the the organizational stuff related to the publication. Mm. Uh, Because the lesbian women felt that, that, uh, you know, the the gay male point of view articulated in the publication uh, was not taking on board important, other important social justice concerns of the period. This is the period of anti-apartheid activism, right? And, And to just have a blinkered white gay male approach, uh, to liberation uh, is actually doing a disservice to the movement itself. Yeah. So yes, there are echoes, the magazines and the publications and the newspapers are, are echoing important social concerns, but uh, sometimes they're also noticeably silent on other social concerns. And, and some of those silences are um, are also the focus of my book. You know um i i appreciate these sources for what they offer us the insights they offer us but i i don't want the readers uh to be to be uh, blind about the about the oversights no. sources as well
0: i mean to an extent as well that like and i took on board what you said there's no there's very little about sort of lesbian women there's even less about trans folk yeah. right <laughs> And so it's almost to the point of well it's it's who's got access to resources isn't it and, and right. like sort of like poverty is heavily feminised. So right. I wonder if there's like other sources of like uh, sort of archival type material that will come across that will allow us a further insight into sort of like you know the the, the issues that lesbian and trans folk faced at the time. <clears throat> I love the way that you've divided the book into like sort of three sections and you name the sections like beautifully. Can you tell us what the sections are named, called and why you chose those words?
1: They're beautiful. Thank you uh, for, for finding that out. Uh, it, was, uh, it was only after I had finished the book that, that the, the uh, section titles came to me. I had the organization clear in my head. Uh, I knew that it would be sort of uh, divided uh, in, in two chapters uh, pertaining to each context. Uh, but then uh, I also, the more I thought about it, I kind of realized that there were, uh, there were important uh, words from each of these contexts, which kind of summed up what, what uh, these pioneers were doing. Mm-hmm. The word that I chose for the Jamaican section is a bang, uh, which, is, uh, which is a horn used by the Maroons. Uh, the, the runaway slaves, uh, they used the horn as a sort of a call to arms, you know, uh, against the, the, uh, the colonial uh, masters that they were escaping from, right? So it is a rallying call, as it were, you know, uh, but also a means of communication among people who were the, the original revolutionaries in the Caribbean islands, as it were, right? The um, the this, this second section is titled "Azadi." Uh, Azadi is uh, you know it's it's from um, from the Urdu word for liberation, uh, and what it really means is uh, is again uh, within the uh, within the Indian context, what it had always meant was um, liberation from any form of oppression. Historically, that that meant uh, um, liberation from colonial oppression, but more recently, uh, the queer population has used this phrase and sort of combined it with, with the word queer and called it queer Azadi, which is a, a form of interculturalism, if you really look at it. You know, queer, not a word from the from the South Asian context. Azadi, very much a South Asian word, which has a historical legacy attached to it, uh, a legacy of, of revolution and liberation, uh, much like the Abeng hon in the Jamaican context. Yeah. And Amandala, which is the third section is the South African section. Amandala, again, the, the sort of um, African national Congress's uh, call for revolution and liberation, the anti apartheid struggle, uh, which was a revolutionary struggle. And and which, which did lead to certain successes. And South Africa is a test case here because because it did decriminalize homosexuality. Um, It did provide equal rights for all sections of the population, regardless of gender and sexual orientation constitutionally. It did not do it retrospectively. Mm -hmm. It too inherited the legacy of colonialism, but that legacy of colonialism was remedied the moment apartheid ended. Um, and so, so these three terms, I think allow me to capture the, the potential for, uh, for resistance uh, as also the connection with these very local indigenous words with uh, the, the conversations that these activists were having, um, which connected to second and third wave feminist and social activism. Um, some of which was translated over in
0: each of these contexts. Mm. Yeah, I wondered, like because I wondered about the South African context whether in so whether it was easier to enshrine in laws sort of like equality because the the uh, segregation was so formal. Yeah, it was it was right. recognised whereas in Jamaica and in India it's still as segregated but it's it's less formally recognised. Right. Yes. So I wondered if it was easier than just to kind of enshrine that into law, so I kind of really wanted to talk again about Jamaica because you say uh in the Jamaican context uh, you talk about the print mediated communication allowed uh the the sort of like New Kingston as a liberationist activist space how How did that happen? Can you talk talk us through that a little bit
1: um so uh... New Kingston is, is a, it's a mixed bag um, as far as I can make out, you know, uh, it was kind of recently developed in the seventies. So it, it sort of became a, a, a space where, uh, where uh, many of the people who were activists in the gay freedom movement in Jamaica lived and could socialize with each other. Mm. But, but it is also a very class demarcated space. You know, uh, it is, uh, it is a uh, sort of a, a you know, sort of like like an affluent section of an American city. Yeah. you know, uh, gated communities, uh, uh, you know, uh, shopping malls, hotels, mm. those are located in New Kingston, Right. So, so it remains a very sort of a class segregated space. But I, what has recently happened is that because the city is so uh, uh, differentiated. By by income and purchasing potential, it has also, you know, there is a sort of a bleeding in of of, uh, of the elements which New Kingstonians or the upper class Jamaicans would like to keep out yeah. of that location. So uh, so one of the um, one of the peculiar things which has happened is that there is it is the home of trans impoverished homeless transgender populations now literally living on the streets or um, you know or in in sort of areas which are in uninhabitable you no know, drains yeah. so you know the gully queens so to speak they are called and they are you know they're there they're visible but they are obviously targets of violence you know extreme forms of violence right and so so new kingston is one, one could see it as a as a space which perhaps due to the social interactions which were facilitated among the people living in that space perhaps it did lead to a form of queer association associationism right <clears throat> but also that it that it kind of uh, uh, it made the people who did not have class privilege especially vulnerable to extreme forms of social violence And I think that is the case pretty much everywhere in big cities. It is certainly the case in Mumbai or Bombay as it was previously called, right? There are these these, uh, exclusive preserves of of, uh, affluence and and wealth and security. But then there are also uh, areas where where people are cruising in public and are susceptible to to forms of violence, police extortion still recently when when homosexuality was uh, was still criminalized uh, uh, people who are cruising in public spaces in, in mumbai are uh, are more susceptible to violence um, than than people who are uh, who are expressing their sexuality and and you know uh, uh, having relations sexual relations which are technically criminalized in the safety and security of their homes or at private events yeah. right? so this is this is a sad reality everywhere you know um, but but it's more exacerbated in 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 global south cities where extreme wealth and extreme poverty uh, sort of coexist side by side yeah you know which is not to say that if a population is criminalized that whether whether um, whether the members of that community are extremely rich extremely poor they're both susceptible to extortion and abuse yeah right? uh, but the extortion and abuse is is often uh more extreme when the population is impoverished yeah
0: exactly and i think you, have- you get that you get that in the sort of like the the you know within the global northwest in, you know because the, the south is in the north northwest as well and my research around street workers you know experiencing extreme levels of violence you know yes. along yeah. with homelessness and quite often like extreme levels of violence from police you know um yeah that, that you know that's that doesn't escape does it and it's quite interesting as well to think about you know because I, I was thinking about when south speaks to south because what what really occurred to me as well is um th- like again the timing of this because i was thinking about how you know in the decade before the 70s like you know uh, sort of Malcolm X had been reaching out to Africa and sort of like you know sort of like trying to engage as a black as a black man with you know wider society wider sort of like global society and this is a continuation of that type of thing isn't it is that that continuation of people reaching out to each other over the sort of like former colonial sort of powers but but also yeah. as well that 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 was kind of you know that's that's echoed as well sort of later when when sort of um with, within those kind of like the marginalized communities in in sort of like more affluent countries, you know the support that's got from from out, out outside of that i uh, yeah, I didn't really articulate that very well, but yeah I know what I'm saying so you say in the book, in the CODA section of the book, you describe that you learned and continue to learn to be a feminist from the print counter public studied in the book. What do you mean by that? How you learned to be a feminist, how you continue to learn to be a feminist? I thought that was quite interesting and I kind of wanted to explore that with so you.
1: I, uh, I, I think, um, you know, I was, uh, you know, I was born in the 70s. I was very young when some of these... Uh, magazines uh, was, were were published in India in the 80s, mm. right? And I, um, you know, I did not, uh, um, you know, I was probably 10 or 12 years old. Uh, mm. And uh, when one day my mother came home excitedly talking about this this magazine that she had, she had, uh, somebody had, inter- had, had given her a copy of the magazine. Um, and I, uh, uh, she brought it home. She was very excited. She looked through it and I, Look through it as well. I was not so excited, you know. It was it was all print. There weren't any pictures and anything. And and um, I uh, so these some of these magazines were 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 around the time I was growing up, you know. And I did not have uh, an idea about the importance of these magazines for 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 uh, for women, a generation older than me. It was only later in the 80s when I went to college, you know, when I was in college, then I realized the kind of, you know, then I heard more about about these publications. And I also sort of learned more about campus activism, you know, uh, campus women's activism. And and at that point, I think, you know, as a a teenager going to college on public transport, i became more aware of the violence which sort of exists in public spaces uh, for young women and for women of all ages literally right and 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 that is when i went back to those issues of back issues of the magazines which were at my house which uh, you know a few years ago i didn't find so interesting but now suddenly i was looking at them with new eyes yeah and and i realized that hey wait a minute this is a, these, these uh, feminists were talking about these issues, have been talking about these issues for the past 10 years, and now they appear relevant to me because, uh, you know, one, one encounters as a woman harassment in public spaces, uh, on public transport. Um, one has seen the kind of discriminatory practices uh, against, um, you know, uh, against people who look or behave a little differently. You know, I went to a women's college, and and there were always, uh, you know, uh, indications that that should should women students not behave in a decorous manner, uh, there was likely to be repercussions, mm. uh, or warnings, as it were. Right. So, so I think only in the late eighties did I come to realize the importance of. Uh, of some of these discussions via these magazines, that have these discussions have been taking place in our home uh, because my mother was was sort of aware of these discourses, and and I guess in a sense I also imbibed these discourses, uh, you know, through conversations with her about women's rights, about uh, about um, you know how how best to safeguard myself and. Uh, my, my friends against violence, should be encounter violence in the public sphere. Uh, but the publications were, were talking about these in an open manner, in, an, in, a, uh, in, a, in a very uh, sort of nuanced, open, nuanced, and also unafraid kind of a manner. Yeah. <laughs> I also saw a lot of feminist plays around this time so that kind of sharpened my sense of uh, of the kinds of discussions which could take place outside of those magazines through cultural activism. Uh, street demonstrations were quite common in those days. Um, and uh, the connections between these publications and the activism actually emerged much later when I started working on my PhD on post-colonial drama. And I realized that the drama I wanted to study was uh, was only in- interesting to me insofar as it as it furthered these social movements yeah so uh, so I continue to learn to be feminist from not just from these publications but from the from the uh, cultural manifestations of some of these ways of thinking that these magazines but also the feminist collectives which were uh, responsible for these publications and responsible for the cultural activism uh, initiated, right?
0: Yeah. Um,
1: I think my consciousness of of the connections between feminist concerns and LGBTQ concerns came in the late 1990s, I would say. Well, uh, middle to late 1990s, I was still a student at the University of Delhi, but 1998 is when Deepa Mehta's uh, controversial film Fire was released in India. And it was, uh, the Hindu right wing decided to to censor the screening of the film. And that became the the moment of emergence for Indian feminists, so to speak, Uh, uh, Indian lesbian feminists. Uh, There was still very little connection between mainstream feminism and lesbian feminism in India. But that is also the moment of emergence. That is also the moment when two landmark anthologies, uh, one on gay writing and one on lesbian writing from India, came out. And as luck would have it, I would I was asked to review the anthology on on lesbian writing from India by uh, by the newspaper uh, Pioneer, which is published from New And so uh, the the connections between these two seemingly disparate social movements came together for me uh, from the mid 90s to the late 1990s and uh, you know feminism is is ever evolving mm. and LGBTQ activism so uh, one has to keep on learning how to be a feminist I don't think there is an achievable uh, there is an achievable sense of uh, of being feminist and deciding okay I'm feminist in this way and in this way only yeah. Yeah. Um, If our feminism is not intersectional, it's nothing. No, exactly.
0: and I like the way that you use Spivak in your book as well. I, you know, I've used Spivak in my PhD because, you know, when I was doing my PhD, it forced me to look at how I identified as a feminist. And a lot of this of like, you know, because I I study sex work a lot, the feminists that I would have used previously before, couldn't use it was you know it was not appropriate we have to totally reinvestigate ourselves every time don't we to make you know to make sure that we're not taking away voice because of the privileged position that we occupy right okay what do you mean uh, mean that the research materials you um, examined offer a glimpse of future oriented feminist solidarity Gender and solid, solidarities. That sounded hopeful. I liked the sound of that. What does that mean?
1: Well, uh, there is increasing um, uh, representation of transgender populations in uh, in uh, in many of these contexts, right? So, um, that I study. So that you know, if for instance uh, we do not find we do not find trans voices and trans concerns represented in some of the, some of the publications that I'm studying in the book. Now, then we have to, to, to move beyond these publications and, and say, okay, uh, is there something happening outside of these publications that these publications are not able to reflect or not able to discuss mm-hmm. precisely because their focus is uh, at that point somewhat narrow, Right. And so the, uh, the, the emerging concerns uh, for, for our times are trans-concerns, are concerns where, where, where we need to, to keep in mind that there is not just one way of being queer. There are multiple ways of being queer, just as there are multiple ways of being feminist, right? And so, uh, so uh, if we are thinking of future directions for feminist queer alliances, then one of these would be a, a, a direct focus on transgender mainstreaming, so to speak, right? Uh, or should be at least. Um, and, and there is recognition uh, of, of, uh, of that. Uh, I see a change in press representations and the previously representations of trans lives were sensationalistic, uh, somewhat stereotyped and, and uh, uh, and could be quite objectionable. Uh, now, I think uh, trans people are hopefully uh, represented with, with more dignity, mm-hmm. with more humanity, and, and with an awareness that you know, people are people, you know, uh, no matter what their gender might be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that the choice, within courts, the choice of gender is really not... Uh, not a free choice as it is made out to be, Um, you know, it is, it is not like wearing one's clothes. You know, one, one does not choose one's gender in the same way. It is, it is false to see it in that way. And so, uh, so I think with respect to the Indian government, I think there is some awareness of these concerns. And so we find increasing representation in employment in, um, I guess, uh, voter registration, which requires people to, to, to sort of uh, identify their gender, that has somewhat been changed or is in the process of being changed. Um, and so the future directions that we, we want to look at, uh, if we want to grow as feminists and as, as queer activists, should be not just greater representation, but also a greater kind of uh, uh, awareness that feminism is not just for women and queer activism is not just for, for queer people that that uh, these are ways of looking at the world uh, to transform it yeah exactly. in more just ways in more in more um, fair ways so who did you write
0: this book for when you were writing this book who were you writing this for
1: I was writing it uh, primarily for students interested in in, in digging deep into the history of of feminist and queer studies Um, and um, secondarily for scholars who might be looking for sources. But primarily what what I had in mind was that I had to dig a lot to find some of these sources I didn't want uh your students who were interested in uh in excavating queer histories or feminist histories to be able to, to 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 dig as as long as i had to you know uh they 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 if they wanted sources then then i've provided a list of sources mm. uh, my analysis of those sources but
0: but they don't have to take my word for it. No, you've just signposted them, haven't you? Just right. Yeah, yes. it's important. So um I have to ask you, like at the very end of the book, you talk about a phone call from someone you call A. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that phone call and what it meant to you.
1: I'm sorry, say that again.
0: I said tell us at the end of the book, you talk about a phone call that you received from a student right. A that you called A. Tell us about well, that phone call and what it meant to you.
1: Yeah, so this was, uh, uh, it was just a few months ago. I had already finished uh, the book by then. I was, uh, uh, I was just, uh, you know, uh, I, I was thinking about, uh, about COVID and how it had impacted, uh, you know, queer populations, uh, women. One had heard a lot and read a lot about, about the rise in domestic abuse Uh, because of the lockdown COVID restrictions, because, uh, you know, many of these women found themselves in in houses, shut up with their abusers, right? Uh, For queer people, the social spaces had kind of shrunk as well, because uh, other than social media, there was no safe space for meeting, particularly if if the family in which the queer child or the queer young adult was living. Was was already homophobic, then it became a little bit of a problem, right? So I was thinking about some of these issues. I just didn't know how to how to sort of make sense of them. And then one one night, uh, uh, I I had an I saw an email from somebody who uh, who is who was A's father, and he wrote to me and he said, uh, I see that you work on queer studies, also on feminine studies. Uh, I would like you to talk to my daughter, you know, and this is not the kind of email one receives typically in a day's work, right? Uh, it's just that uh, I wrote to him, I said, I'm happy to talk to your daughter, but I'm not sure what advice I can offer. And he says, no, I just want you to reassure her that it's okay to be to be queer, it's okay to be interested in queer studies. He seemed very supportive of his daughter, you know? And he said, could you send me your WhatsApp number and I'll have her call you on your WhatsApp, uh, uh, you know, number. And so I did. And uh, he first called me and talked to me, the father did, uh, and said, can I put you on the phone with my daughter? And he did, and we talked for an hour. And what I realized was that uh, A's immediate family was very supportive, including her father, but her extended family, um, with whom she was close, because you know in India that's the way it works. You know the extended family has a say uh, in in uh, children's lives and careers, right? And so, so the extended family was not so supportive, and they were they were kind of uh, uh, you know they were. Emotionally, I think without even meaning to, they were kind of torturing her by saying things like, uh, don't bring shame on the family by working on queer stuff. You know, uh, hide your sexuality because we don't really want uh, uh, public shaming, you know, things like that, right? Um, And at the same time, uh, A was was doing her, uh, I think master's or MPhil degree from, from the University of Delhi, And she went to her professors and talked about working on queer queer studies. And she was told by by some of her teachers that this is not really the space to to work on these issues. If you want to work on these, then you should probably apply to a university abroad. Mm -hmm. And that was a bit shocking to me because I, a lot has changed since I have left India, you know? Um, And I have a sense that some of the most vibrant discussions uh, on, on uh, queer and feminist concerns are emerging from that, from, from not just from the university, but also from, um, from the wide, from wider South Asia as a region, right? So that was a, a little shocking. And that, you know, I, I wanted to reassure her that it's okay for her to stay on in India and work on. Studies if that's what she wants, you know. Um, I also think that there is a bit of a uh, shall we say lack of knowledge about the the uh, the various materials which are available for somebody like A to work on queer study. Mm. So this book really, uh, you know, if if A ever looks at the book, this book should help her yeah. um, in 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 working towards that goal of of researching, studying uh, queer literature and queer culture. Uh, I also told her about a bookstore I used to frequent and and gave her clear directions on how she could find those books. Although books are now available, uh, you know, queer literature is available pretty much in all bookstores in India.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's such an important book for, for, you know, as a methodology, it's a really important book. I really enjoyed the book. It made me think you know it did what good books do which made me think but what else is out there you know um it also kind of made me think of a book that i reviewed a few a few months ago with a trans beauty queen from chile who was living in in the states and how he'd used like archival researches it was um yeah it was really interesting so finally what have you got lined up next what's what's next on the on the agenda
1: well, I am uh, thinking uh, of a new project, uh, which is probably going to, to, uh, to look at uh, South Africa and, and uh, the United States, particularly through the perspective of South Africans who were at some point um, visitors or exiles in, in the United States. So there is a kind of a, a, a you know, deep connection between some of these anti-apartheid writers and thinkers and uh, US civil rights activism. Hmm. And so uh, those are some of the connections that I'm thinking of. Uh, I'm thinking in particular of Miriam Makeba, the South African singer who was married to Stokely Carmichael, the power activist. Uh, And so it is going to be a project which is going to be about uh, autobiographies, focused on autobiographies. So uh, the way I access uh, these connections between South African anti-apartheid activism and US civil rights activism will be through through, through autobiographies and biographies. Uh, so this is a new project. I've just started it, I've, uh, sort of submitted uh, one chapter of the project to, to a journal, but it will take time. Uh, you know it is it is such a rich area of analysis but also quite difficult yeah uh, because uh, there's a lot of lot of scholarship which um, is somewhat outside of my primary training and area of emphasis so far uh, I'm not trained in American literary history or American literary studies or American cultural studies so I have to acquire that training <laughs>
0: I like this so far, you know, you know, by the time you finish that book, you are going to be well and truly changed. So my name is Dr. Rachel Stewart. I'm a, as a researcher at the University of Kent in the UK, and I have been talking lot, most, most entertainingly with Kanika Batcha about her book, "Worlding Post-Colonial Sexualities. Kanika, can you just tell us
1: who's published it, when it was published and who you are? Right. The book is uh, published by Rutledge, um, and uh, the book uh, was uh, solicited for the Rutledge series in um, Subversive Histories, Feminist Futures. Uh, this is a new series, and it is a series Rutledge has brought out in collaboration with the National Women's Studies Association. Uh, the book is also the winner of the 2020 National Women's Studies Association Rutledge Prize in Subversive History's Feminist Futures.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us.